Welcome to the Beach Grove United Methodist Church Podcast, where you can hear our Sunday morning sermons in audio form and take them wherever you go. This is the second week of Easter and the first week in our newest series, We Are Witnesses, exploring the nature of the early church and the witness that we carry forth from the resurrection of our Lord and Savior celebrated and observed on Easter Sunday. A reminder that our services are available in their entirety on our YouTube channel, which is linked in the podcast notes. We would love it if you would subscribe to the podcast so that new sermons come into your feed as soon as they are available. You can subscribe using your favorite podcasting app. And please find us on Facebook and Instagram to follow along with all the fun things happening in Beach Grove, whether you live in Suffolk, Virginia or not. We hope you enjoyed this week's message, and please don't forget to share it with others. Our scripture lesson this week comes from the book of Acts, chapter 5, verses 27 through 32. When they had brought them, they had them stand before the council. The high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name. Yet, here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you are determined to bring this man's blood. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than any human authority. The God of our ancestors raised up Jesus, whom you had killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at this at his right hand as leader and savior, that he might give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. So today I get to open Pastor Andrew's Eastertide series in which we will reflect on what it means to be a witness for Christ and what it looks like in a practical sense because we have a story to tell. I realize that only last week we had Easter and these verses roar right past Pentecost, but to be honest, the apostles didn't really start to witness until after then. So you'd be truly hard pressed to find the apostles witnessing while they were holed up in the upper room. So when I first read this passage, about a month ago when Andrew Andrew, uh, presented it to me, I felt kind of once again I'd bitten off more than I could chew. And now in retrospect, it's kind of an ironic idiom to use because what I really meant was I had a hard time finding enough meat on the bone to fill up 15 minutes of discussion. I felt I just had insufficient data to do it. I mean, I could clearly see Peter's witness to the temple council, but I found it hard to relate my indirect experience and understanding to Peter's firsthand account of the resurrection, his direct anointing of the Holy Spirit of Pentecost. I just don't have that. I could see some parallels to modern-day censorship and cancer culture, but I certainly didn't want to get all political today. And I could see the temple council denying responsibility for Jesus' death and blaming them for stirring up hatred And that, too, could get all too political as well, so I didn't want to go anywhere in that direction. So where to go? So honestly, I didn't start writing this message until Palm Sunday afternoon. Until then, all I could do was kind of stew and marinate in these verses for a couple of weeks, and I finally realized what I did need was more data. So where did I find it? Well, I read the verses before and after. I could see then what was really kind of going on in this story. So to to quickly recount the verses before, we find Peter and the apostles 
teaching and performing miracles in, of healing in a place called Solomon's Porch. People believed and were added to the numbers of disciples. And then the apostles found themselves arrested, beaten, jailed, and told to knock it off. The following night, an angel of the Lord opens the doors of the jail, leads them out, and tells them to go to the temple and tell the people about this new life. So at sunrise, they go to the temple and begin to teach about Jesus. The temple council gets together later, I suppose, a bit later in the morning, you know, 9 o'clock, you know, had to have the coffee first and all that. And they decide they want to bring the, the apostles in, and I assume to harass them publicly and to admonish them further about what they were doing so they, could send, so they sent some men to the jail to go get them. The men find the jail locked. They find the guards in place, but they find no apostles. They report this back to a confused and bewildered council. And in almost comic fashion, while they're still scratching their heads, another man comes in and says, in effect, hey, those guys you jailed yesterday, they're in the temple preaching. So the council, now losing their minds, sends soldiers to the temple to round the apostles up, and that's where the teaching scriptures kick in. So the verse following are very tell telling about the council's mindset. First, the council members are furious at Peter's reply, and, they are, and they, then they plot to kill them. And mind you, this is right, right in front of them. One Pharisee by the name of Gamaliel stands up and asks the apostles to leave the meeting, smart move and then lays some wisdom on the council. He recounts two other troublemakers, that is troublemakers in their eyes, okay? One named Theodos and the other named Judas. He reminds them that each of them had a relatively large following. Theodos was said to have had 400 and Judas was just said to have many. In each of these cases, once Theodos and Judas were killed, their followers eventually disbanded and scattered. But this might be different, Gamaliel says. He warns them to stay away from them and leave them alone. He says if their plan is something they thought up, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop them. You might even be fighting against God himself. So the council agrees. But nonetheless, brings the apostles back in for another beating and admonishment warning not to speak in the name of Jesus. And I have to wonder what was going on through, through Gamaliel's mind while they're doing this. Did they even listen to a word I said? So the apostles left the meeting, thanking God for the honor of suffering dishonor for Christ. They did not stop teaching the good news that Jesus is the Messiah and continued to make their presence in the temple every day. Thanks be to God. I have to tell you that this story in context now gives me a better view on what it means to witness for Christ today. Being a witness for Christ is every bit as important today as it was back then. Here in Suffolk, Virginia, though, we have little to no chance of being beaten or threatened or imprisoned for speaking the name of Jesus, yet we're shy about it. Why? Is our witness going to lose us friends? Perhaps, but were they really your friends to begin with? Peter and the disciples face real and certain danger simply for telling their own life experiences, yet they weren't about to hold it in. Sure, we didn't get to hear Jesus speak. We didn't experience the tongues of flames at Pentecost. And we didn't have an angel let us out of jail. But the fact that we're able to read this story at all is a testament to the truth of Christ. 
In the face of establishments, both the Temple Council and the Roman Empire, this movement didn't die with Jesus. Again, thanks be to God. Gamaliel was right. This surely would have ceased if it was all a story of the apostles' making. No one is going to be beaten, tortured, jailed, or killed, as I said, for a cause that they know, in fact, is a lie. The apostles witnessed firsthand that Jesus Christ was killed, but is risen. They could not deny what they had witnessed. They would not let the capital T truth be silenced. To suffer for Christ was an honor for them. So what does our witness look like then? In reflection of the apostles' stories with actual threats of actual violence and persecution, how can we let this life-giving truth be snuffed out in our lifetimes? Would we want to go down in history as a generation that let Christianity fade into nothingness because we didn't want to lose favor on social media? Now, I'm not saying that we need to go grab our Bibles right now, roam the streets, spreading the word of God to every passerby. No, that is not witness. 1 Peter 3.15 tells us to always be prepared to give an account or witness for our hope. And that is what we should always be doing. So if I'm to, get, to convince you to give a witness, shouldn't I also be prepared uh, and willing to give a witness of my own? Of course I should. To do otherwise would make me a hypocrite and certainly would not make me worthy to darken this pulpit with my shadow. So I believe I've witnessed, you, witnessed to you before that especially when I'm a little stuck on a message, God always sends me something to inspire me. No different this time. No different at all. While riding back from Pennsylvania last Monday, I've been driving in silence for a while, and I decided, hey, let's turn on the radio, kind of break up the monotony. And as is normal to me, I flick around from station to station trying to find something worthwhile listening to. You know, there's music genres that I'll fly right past, and certain political theaters, and I don't want to hear that garbage either. And there were an array of, of stations that yeah, listen to things that aren't really worth mentioning. And if something's on commercial, of course, I skip by that too. So eventually, I stopped on a radio sermon by Dr. Michael Youssef. And if you're not familiar with him, he is an Egyptian Christian who has faced persecution and is a powerful witness for Jesus Christ. And what was his sermon on? Being a powerful witness. I can't make this up. I really can't. I can witness that he leadeth me. I really can. And God is good. In the sermon, he explained that a witness in a trial is not required to give their knowledge or opinion on the law or to know anything at all about the theory of jurisprudence but to simply state the facts of what they saw, what they heard, what they experienced. Nothing more, nothing less. Jesus understood the importance of witness. He told his apostles to go and be witnesses. That was the last thing he told them. The book of Acts starts with the, the historical account of Jesus, of Jesus, the resurrection, and the time between Jesus' resurrection and ascension. Also, that the message is Jesus, the person. Dr. Youssef goes on to explain that only Christianity 
has a message of a person that is inextricable from the message. All other religions have a central figure, which you can remove entirely because they are only sets of principles and lessons and rules in their core. But with Christianity, it's different. The message is the messenger. Remove the risen Christ from the message, and all you have is a corpse, which is to say, no faith at all. Without Jesus, there is no message. Jesus didn't merely tell us about salvation. He is salvation. Jesus didn't merely tell us about the wages of sin. He bore them himself. Jesus didn't merely tell us how to get to the Father. He is the way to the Father. And finally, Jesus didn't merely tell us about God. He is God. And I have to tell you to admit to you, that statement has really, really confounded me for a lot of years. And I was even hesitant to repeat it. But I'm ready to submit and witness to it. And thinking on it and trying to forget about it, God kept it in the back of my mind. And then it hit me. How else could I explain God keep telling me and leading me to these things? And while I was researching witness for Christ, if that wasn't true, I believe if it wasn't true, God would have let me somewhere else. So this is a revelation for me, and I have to praise God. So continuing God, Dr. Youssef's message, our faith is not merely a set of morals, principles, ethical principles, and, God, and rules. It is set on a personal relationship with a historical figure who lived, and by the way, still lives, to guide us along faith's journey. And Jesus' very manifestation is our proof. The resurrection is a fact of history. No honest historian could dispute the resurrection as there were so many witnesses to the risen Christ, some 500 or so, that they were willing, and that they were willing to die for that witness. Our witness is to look back at the apostles and tell their story. We believe because they believed, and they witnessed in the face of oppression. We have it easy. We know the truth of Christ. We know it's hard to be a disciple because in our own minds, we struggle with letting go of ourself, to die to self, and living solely for Jesus. We struggle to be constantly pure in heart and mind, a seemingly impossible feat. But we also know there's a much better place in store for us when we do. Few things that are worth doing are easy to do. So there is really no need to be in fear or to be silent. The best is yet to come. This world means nothing apart from God. We cannot be afraid to say Jesus Christ is alive today. Jesus Christ brings eternal life to anyone who would believe in him. Jesus Christ is Lord, Savior, Messiah, and yes, God. To God be the glory through Jesus Christ. As the hymn states, you can have all this world. Give me Jesus. Amen. <laughs>